Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, Air University, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. This is the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. Welcome to the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. I'm Dr. Jared McKinney, your host. I'm joined today by Mr. Michael McClausick, a senior fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and the editor-in-chief of PRISM, NDU's flagship journal of national and international security. Prior to this assignment, Michael served in various positions at the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Department of State. Uh, The latest issue of PRISM, Volume 9, Number 3, looks at COVID as a human security issue. I wonder, Michael, if you could begin our conversation by describing the key insights that this issue puts forward. Thank you very much, Dr. McKinney. I think the fundamental insight from uh, the experience of putting this issue together is that COVID-19 is not merely a human security issue. We knew from the get-go that COVID-19 was a threat to human security. The evidence was abundantly clear uh, as of the summer of 2020. You remember before that, in the spring of 2020, we all thought we would be back into our offices within a few weeks. But we knew that there was a human security issue of significant magnitude. It was really by the fall of 2020 that we realized that beyond being a human security issue, COVID-19 was a national and international security issue in a more classic sense. It had an impact on military readiness, on supply chains, on all sorts of structural factors that affected our military readiness and preparation and our ability to, uh, to defend our national interests. So it was really that recognition in the fall that inspired uh, Dr. Amit Gupta from the Air University and I to put together this issue. And among the insights from the issue, uh, I think one of the most important was, well, first of all, many of the insights are reconfirmations of lessons we should have learned in the past. A lot of the challenges that we face today in national and international security are what I would classify as wicked problems. They don't have easy definitions. They are hard to get your arms around. Nobody knows what the the cause is. Uh, And also, characteristic of wicked or complex problems is that when you intervene, you try to solve them, you change the problem itself. And And you also have responsibility for the results of your efforts. You look at Sweden, one of the cases that we profiled in, the, in PRISM 19, Sweden began with a laissez-faire policy. There was no lockdown, there was no mask mandate, no vaccination requirements. People went on with their lives as normal. The result of that is that they had a significantly higher infection rate and death rate, in fact, than their neighbor countries. 
uh, the, the Swedish authorities have to take responsibility for that. That was their effort to address the problem, and, and they have to pay the costs. Um, another in the key insight is just how substantial the magnitude of displacement, discontinuity, and disruption of normal global operating practices. I mentioned supply chains. I don't think anybody understood the magnitude of the disruption to global supply chains that we were going to experience, which we are still, two years later, experiencing. In an ironic and somewhat uh, banal sense, I'm personally experiencing it. This issue of PRISM 19, the government uh, publication office is unable to obtain paper for a paper copy of the, uh, the journal. And this, of course, is that's at, at a small scale, but this is the disruption has been global. Another, I think, very important insight is that with regard to solutions, no one size fits all. Every country experienced COVID in a very different way, and the responses were diverse from Sweden's laissez-faire policy to uh, Singapore or uh, Taiwan or South Korea's more um, enforced community-oriented uh, protection, public protection policies. No one-size-fits-all, and nobody came up with a perfect solution. And a final thing I'll say as an insight is that like many complex or wicked problems, this one can't be solved in a permanent sense. This is something that has to be managed over time. It's not going away. Uh, there are new variations which will hopefully become gradually less and less um, potent uh, and dangerous, but uh, the problem has to be managed, not solved. So we will be dealing with this uh, for a very long time. And I guess the, the final insight is that um, we habitually fail to prepare for what could be very dangerous, though it is unlikely, events. And I think we've now learned we have to be prepared for something like this. Uh, we have to be able to anticipate this. This is a question of anticipatory governance. And that is the responsibility of our leaders to look forward and see what problems not only we face this minute, but in the next 10 minutes or the next 10 years. This is tricky, especially as U.S. focus looks particularly at great power competition or strategic competition which is, of course, an issue of acute importance given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So th there's clearly some sort of tension maybe between security priorities. Uh, in a previous issue of PRISM, a very interesting essay called The Origins of Russian Conduct noted, quote, that the United States must settle in for another round of confrontation and competition with the Kremlin. In this iteration, however, the Kremlin will not be the primary object of U.S. focus. Today, in April 2022, what do you make of that claim? Do you think it still holds true? If I recall, that article was written by a RAND uh, expert, uh, Clint Reach, and I think his point was uh, not that we don't need to be concerned with Russia, uh, but that Russia is not the central, the pacing threat for us in the, the midterm. Um, we have to distinguish between long-term attention and short-term attention. That's really something that we have a, a constant problem with. We tend to follow the shiny bright object, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it's the Middle East or Afghanistan or right now Ukraine. But a great power has to be able to 
focus on multiple things at once. Not too many, but at least a few things at once. The war in Ukraine was unanticipated several years ago um, when Clint started working on this. And uh, I think that he would still agree that although Russia continues to be a significant threat, after all, it has the largest nuclear weapons armory in the world, it is not over the long term going to be the primary threat. It doesn't possess the comprehensive set of tools of national strength that our current, what the, the Pentagon calls the pacing threat, China has. China can threaten us not only militarily, as Russia can, but economically, technologically, and even, I would say, ideologically. If you look at Russia, Russia has profound problems to face. It's demographics, it's a primary commodity-centered economy, it's multinationality. Remember, there was a war in Chechnya just 20 years ago. They've had, they've had problems with their Muslim population over the years. So Russia has plenty of problems of its own. Also, it has a declining longevity, a declining, and of course its economy right now is hobbled by the uh, multilateral sanctions. And that, that will affect the economy for a generation. But that's just one generation. Looking downrange at the, the long term, Russia will, this problem will eventually um, calm not that we should take our eye off it until it reaches an acceptable solution but, or an acceptable condition, but it's not the long-term existential threat that China poses. And we have to be able to distinguish between the threats that we face today and the long-term threat. Today it's Ukraine. Tomorrow it could be Mexico. But what is the threat over the long term? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, I guess. Another one of the ideas that you've written and been thinking about is this imperative for the United States to learn or better relearn the art of grand strategy. And you have called for the rationalization of policies, um, not only towards Russia and Ukraine, but toward China. How could the United States go about doing this? Could you sketch what the grand strategic process should be and um, what elements need to be included to create a strategy that isn't brittle and that would be undone by something unexpected or sudden like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thank you for that question, Dr. McKinney. That's a, that's a, a vexing question. There are some critics or skeptics who argue that we don't really need a grand strategy, that no plan uh, survives its first encounter with the enemy. So what's the point of having a grand strategy? I would disagree with that. There's an old saying that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. To interpret that in, in international relations terms, what, the, what that's saying to me is that if you don't have a vision of the future, uh, then you're just basically living by ad hoc responses to other people's challenges. You're not in any way in control of your fate. The idea of a grand strategy is it's challenging for the United States because of our national security architecture, but I, I want to distinguish it from our national security strategies that we publish every four or five years. There are two, you've posed a compound question, what process is best suited to reach a grand strategy and what might be the contours or the elements of such a grand strategy? 
With respect to the process, the current process is highly bureaucratic. It's centered in the National Security Council, which is composed largely of um, seconded officers from various agencies in the, in the uh, interagency community. They're for a short term, and they do their best to collect insight and equity and uh, buy-in from all of the agencies engaged in national security. So the end result, inevitably, is strategy or uh, policy by bureaucracy. Uh, they say that an, an elephant is a mouse designed by a committee. Well, to an extent, that's what our national security strategies look like. Uh, they've, they've been better and, and worse. Uh, the, the national security strategy of 2017 did place a, a significant focus on the Indo-Pacific region, and that was an improvement. But it still has elements of everything in it. It's not really a grand strategy. It's a, it's a strategy for an administration. A grand strategy looks down the road 50 years, 60 years, and envisions what kinds of relations, what status the United States will have at that time. The last time we had a successful grand strategy, in my personal opinion, uh, it was the result of an initiative by President Eisenhower in the 1950s when he assembled a, a group of national security experts, a bipartisan group, importantly, put them in the solarium room in the White House and charged them with coming up with a grand strategy for the United States. And they, had, they were divided into three groups. Each group came back with its own strategy, and ultimately, President Eisenhower chose the strategy that was attributed to the great diplomat George Kennan, which we refer to as containment. And the containment strategy had an end goal of the defeat of global communism and the Soviet Union. And it succeeded. It lasted from the late 19, uh, the early 1950s until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. There have been other attempts since then, but none has really gained traction, and they've mostly been bureau bureaucratically uh, neutered. I think what we need is a vision for the future that the American public, all of its communities, not just the national security professionals, the soldiers, but American businesses, American educators, American students, uh, youthful American, we need a vision that everyone can buy into. And that will require a bipartisan effort to identify that, that global mission. Today, I would say the country lacks a, a national mission People seem particularly keen on their own personal interests, which is deeply ingrained in the American DNA. But, it, in my opinion, it should be in the context of a national mission. So what should the elements of that strategy be? Well, I think, as I said earlier, today the, the, we're, we're uh, preoccupied by what's going on in Ukraine. A few years ago, it was Afghanistan. A few years before that, it was Iraq. For that, it was Latin America. What is it that whatever immediate challenge we're facing in the short term, we are going to need, regardless of the origin of that challenge? What do we need to keep our bearings for the foreseeable future, by which I mean during my children's lifetime? That is the extent of my concern for, the, for purposes of national strategy. I think there are two things. One is the survival and indeed the flourishing of what we call the liberal rules-based order. 
which has provided us so much opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This liberal rules-based order is at risk right now, in my personal opinion. So its survival and flourishing is should be our top priority. Whatever threat we face, we are going to need allies and partners. This is a unique national uh, resource that we have, the United States possesses. I call it our uh, the, the fourth um, strategic offset. No country, neither China nor Russia, has the network of partners and allies that we have. And we should be cultivating that at the highest level of our national strategy. Because what, whether the threat is China or Russia or pandemic or climate, we are going to need those allies and partners. So I believe that that should be the first order of our national strategy, protecting and cultivating those relationships. Hmm. So we're, we're speaking today at Air University. And I wonder what role in this process of grand strategic formation uh, do you see for the institutions of professional military education in the United States? Um, you know, the military traditionally is, is focused on the military instrument of power. Uh, does the military need to go beyond that in its thinking? And, and if so, how should it do that? When he was Secretary of Defense, um, Secretary Jim Mattis said that professional military education is stagnant. Uh, that may be in part true. I don't think it's true in terms of strategy. Most of the professional military education institutions I'm familiar with do a pretty thorough and good job of teaching strategic thinking to their student bodies. I think that it would be improved if there were more emphasis on what we call the non-military elements of national strength. For example, I'm teaching with a colleague, Professor Rich Andres, at National War College, uh, what he calls an unprecedented course there on geoeconomics and emerging disruptive technologies. Courses, education that deals with the other elements of national strength are important for today's warfighters and national security leaders because in the future they will be working more closely with civilian national security, with their civilian counterparts, and the challenges will no longer be strictly military. In fact, we've, we've I think, acknowledged for many years now that most of our national strategic challenges cannot be met by military power alone. They can only be met successfully by integrated efforts of all of our elements of national strength. And we have a, a term now uh, that's being developed, integrated deterrence, which involves all of those elements of national strength. I would go even beyond the formal elements of national strength towards the informal elements of national strength, including our corporate community, our technological uh, and innovation ecosystem, our educational system. These are all national assets that, in my opinion, are unrivaled in the world that we don't use effectively in our national security undertaking. And it's, it's really a major uh, oversight. At the National Defense University, we do have the, uh, the Eisenhower School. Uh, but the, the Eisenhower School, which focuses on uh, the industrial power base, the military industrial power base. And that's, that's something. But we, we need more of that in all of the schools, in my opinion. Uh, and just a sensitivity to the comprehensive nature of the security challenges that we face.
it's more than just military. So I think that that's something that the, uh, the, the colleges could do. Now at National Defense University, we have a unique situation in that we are located in the National Capital Region and we uh, are under the, the command of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So our scholars do engage on a regular basis with the Joint Chiefs in, uh, in, in supporting them. We have a, a scholars program, the NDU scholars program, which highlights outstanding work done by NDU students and brings it to the attention of the Joint Chiefs. We have a, a number of other uh, programs that focus and address the special areas of emphasis that, the, emphasis that the, the Joint Chiefs identify every two years. So we are being as responsive as we are able to be to the national security leaders. At the same time, though, we have a responsibility to teach leadership, to teach uh, conventional strategy approaches. So it's a balancing act. You only get one year uh, in most of these institutions. And as General Mattis went before he was the SecDef, said to me on numerous occasions, Michael, I love all your ideas of what new stuff we have to put into PME. Can you tell me what are your great ideas, what we take out of PME so that we can fit those other things in? Well, the bottom line is you can't fit everything in. So I think we're, we're actually doing a pretty good job. We have a, a professional military education network in this country that no other country can come close to. And it is indeed the envy of every other country that I've visited. Speaking of fitting in and priorities, what are your priorities for PRISM going forward? And um, specifically in regard to the Indo-Pacific, what questions or topics would you like to see covered? Well, that's a, a very um, fortunate question for me because everything that I am doing right now has, uh, with PRISM has relevance to the Indo-Pacific region. The first priority is great power competition. For 20 years, we focused on the global war on terror, on reconstruction and stabilization, counterinsurgency and counterinsurgency. We focused on it not only institutionally, but intellectually. That's what most of the writing was about at that time, and that's what most of the publishing was about for almost 20 years. Now we are refocused on great power competition and what it means in the 21st century, how it differs from the past great power competition eras, and how it is in some ways similar. A, a second a dimension to that, something that, as I mentioned, is, I believe, very important, is geoeconomics. How the great power competition is fought in the economic domain. I mentioned before that China is an unprecedented economic rival. After World War II, the United States was responsible for 50% of the global product. We were the unrivaled, unchallenged, primary power in the world. This is no longer the, the case. China's economy, by some measures, is already the largest economy, if you measure by purchasing power parity. And their nominal economy is set to outpace ours within the next few years. Uh, that is a challenge that we've never faced uh, as a nation in, a, in over a century. It's also a global challenge because their economic presence is now being felt everywhere not just in the Indo-Pacific region, but in Africa, the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, even in the Americas. I've even read that China is one of the growing owners of American farmland, uh, which is somewhat disturbing. In other words, their economic power has global reach. Technologically, China was for a long time thought of as a copycat nation, but they have 
They've evolved far beyond that. Their technology is now world-class. They may not uh, have caught up with us in some areas, but it's likely that they have exceeded us in some areas. For example, in 5G uh, infrastructure, in uh, quantum computing and quantum communications. Uh, we can no longer count on our technological superiority as a strategic offset. It won't be anymore. We, ha we have to find other ways to uh, match China economically and in terms of technology, which is the third element, G uh, great power competition, geoeconomics, and emerging disruptive technologies. That is the third uh, direction that I'm taking PRISM in. We, we have to understand these technologies. Some of them are so beyond the understanding of most people, myself included, that there's, there's just a frightening unknown element there, and we need to become more educated about the uh, national security implications of technologies such as quantum, such as uh, the evolving neurosciences, such as uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Every officer, every member of the national security community has to have at least some basic fluency in these things, and that's what I hope PRISM will be able to map. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. The journal is PRISM, published out of National Defense University, and today, thank you to Mr. Michael McClodgick for our discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. McKinney. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the interview. You can engage with our interviewees, authors, and others via our Twitter feed, at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites. <laughs>